Well, I guess we'll go ahead and get started. Um, thank you all for being here today. Um, and welcome to our library talk. Um, as I stated last time we, when we did a library talk, um, library talks exist for a number of purposes. And, and um, uh, not every library talk will encompass all of our purposes. But in general, our purposes are to help uh, students prepare for ministry, um, aid them in their academic pursuit, uh, pursuits and interview uh, scholars and discuss important topics, which is what we're doing today. Uh, in no way do our talks intend to be the final word on any given <laughs> subject or promote a specific viewpoint. Uh, our hope is that our talks expose students to different viewpoints that might help them think through particular topics a little bit better. And traditionally, libraries support free speech and free inquiry, um, and that's what we're really trying to do here today. Uh, if we can quote Francis Schaeffer real quick on that. Um, in Art in the Bible, he says, if Christianity is true uh, to what is there, true to the ultimate environment, the f infinite personal God who is really there, then our minds are freed. We can pursue any question. And so uh, let me introduce our speakers here today. Uh, first, we have next to me uh, Dr. Michael Bird. He is the academic dean and lecturer of theology at Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia. Um, he certainly has uh, come the furthest for today's talk. <laughs> um, uh, in the middle, we have uh, Dr. Scott Hildreth, who is the Assistant Professor of Global Studies and the George Lyle Director of the Center for Great Commission Studies here at Southeastern. And then finally, we have Dr. John Hammett, who is Senior Professor of Systematic Theology here at Southeastern, and he is also the John Leadley Dagg Chair of systematic theology. So thank you gentlemen uh, for being here today. Um, I want to start off with a little bit of personal ecclesial history from you guys and uh, Dr. Bird we'll start with you oh, man. because uh, you, you seem to have an interesting ecclesial history uh, yeah. for yourself. So if you yeah. could talk a little bit about that. Um, well I grew up with no church uh, basically sort of in a very sort of secular suburban context in Brisbane, Australia. Uh, I wasn't taken to church, thing maybe for the odd wedding or something like that. So the church wasn't part of my life. I just assumed churches were filled with moralizing geriatrics. <laughs> uh, then I got invited to a church when I joined the army and uh, I went along, I was just kind of like, you know, bored, needed something to do, so I thought I'd go along, something different. And it was great, I went to a little Baptist church plant and uh, they introduced me to, to Jesus, uh, the gospel. I became a Christian in 1994 and the world became a different place. Uh, then I was eventually transformed, uh, transferred to another uh, 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 ch uh, church when I went in the army and I got introduced to reformed theology. <laughs> uh, so kind of like, um, it's like, it's like Southern Baptist reformed theology because yeah. it, it was that sort of a thing. Then I, I got moved to Scotland where it's a, it, the church options are about um, eight different ways of being Presbyterian. Uh, it's, it's slight exaggeration. That's pretty close to it. It's like eight different ways of being Presbyterian. Uh, so I kind of joined the, 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 the Presbyterian scene and I effectively became Presbyterian while I was there. Uh, we came back to Australia. I remained in a Presbyterian church. But I st started becoming a closet Anglophile. Um, because um, the great New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce, he kept two books on his desk. One was a Greek New Testament, the other was a copy of the Book of Common Prayer. Yeah. I thought, well, it worked out pretty well for him. Yeah. <laughs> so I started, and the, the Book of Common Prayer is pretty pretty good. It's it's got a very uh, it's got a very biblical and what I would call Trinitarian prayer life. You get a regular diet of Scripture and all sorts of good things. 
and I started reading more about Anglicanism and all the cool kids were doing it, you know, <laughs> John Stolt, Adelston McGrath, James Packer, N.T. Wright, uh, and uh, eventually the chance came down to move to Melbourne to Ridley College, which is an Anglican college, mm -hmm. where I was formally uh, received into the Anglican Communion, and then I actually went through the ordination process and became an Anglican priest. Hmm. So that's my Baptist Presbyterian <laughs> Anglican. The main, the main thing to remember is pres Presbyterianism is a gateway drug to Anglicanism. <laughs> and I've got, I've got a lot of friends who've had the same story. My boss, yeah. Brian Rosner, same story. Yeah. Baptist Presbyterian Anglican. Amy Peeler, Wheaton College, same thing. Mm. Baptist Presbyterian Anglican. One of the uh, lead editors at Kriegel Publishing House. Baptist, Presbyterian, <laughs> Anglican, there is a sociological study to be done there. At least you came to Jesus as a Baptist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And was baptized as a believer. There we go. By full immersion. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Well, the, the pesky Scots always good. <laughs> um, <It's>, yeah. <clears throat> All right, so uh, Dr. Hammett, we'll, we'll go to you and your uh, personal history. You mentioned that at, while at Trinity, uh, you've always been a Baptist, mm -hmm. um, but at Trinity you ran into some, well, ran into some Presbyterian. Well, I, I was raised Baptist in a, a traditional Southern Baptist church. I went to Duke University undergrad, and there I had a lot of involvement in InterVarsity and Campus Crusade, those types of groups. So I had some interdenominational experiences there. After my college, looking to see this is now 1977, at that time, this place and other Southern Baptists were not a very good place to go. And so I went to Trinity, and I was not sure that I would remain a Baptist because I was the, uh, our convention was in a, a difficult time then. So I went to Trinity with, with something of an open mind, um, but and my best friends at Trinity were a, a Presbyterian and a Methodist. And we had numerous discussions during the years about various topics in ecclesiology, and I became a more convinced Baptist there. I had been raised Baptist, now became a convictional Baptist, and, and left Trinity, more convinced on key issues of baptism and polity, those types of things. Also, I did like the fact that we were uh, recovering our conservative roots and uh, had a very strong emphasis on missions, and so some theological and some practical things kept me a Baptist. Um, Dr. Hildreth, if you want to talk about your journey, ecclesiology. Yeah, my journey's not very complicated, you know. I was. I joke in the introduction to the book I wrote on the cooperative program that I was a member of a Southern Baptist Sunday School um, months before I was even born. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was popular in the late 60s, uh, what we call the cradle roll in the Southern Baptist Church. We grew our churches through Sunday School, so all young parents were encouraged to enroll their kids in Sunday School before they were even born. Yeah. And so I was born a Southern Baptist. Uh, I didn't become a Christian until I was 19. So I actually grew up in a very traditional uh, Southern Baptist church in South Alabama uh, and was lost and uh, became a Christian um, at the University of Auburn and uh, then um, came back and studied at the University of Mobile, which is an Alabama Baptist uh, school, studied for ministry there. Uh, and really through becoming a Christian, and then learning about why, what it was that Baptists thought, what, what it was that Baptists believe about the church, and really having grown up in that tradition, that just becomes you know, who I am convictionally and denominationally as a Southern Baptist. And so I've been really a Southern Baptist my whole life. 
even when we were overseas, you know, we traveled overseas. I was a member of a German Baptist church uh, when I was in Berlin. And then uh, when we lived in Central Asia, there were no, <laughs> no real Christian denominations to speak of. Uh, I mean, obviously the Orthodox Church, but that was a different group of people. And so we just stayed uh, in, in Baptist community there. Okay. So my hope for this library talk is I'll just throw out a question and then you guys can, can just take and, and go with it wherever you want to go. Um, but the first question I want to ask you guys, just so we're, we're all clear, what is the church? How would you define uh, the church? Um, so, Dr. Bird, we'll, we'll start with you, if you'd like. Uh, the church is uh, God's people gathered around uh, in worship, in, in mission. Yeah. Off, off the cuff. Okay. Uh, uh, congregation of baptized believers is the core, but then they relate to each other, I think, in a covenant type of commitment, whether they have that formally or not. All the one another's of the New Testament, they're going to do that to each other, love, pray for, encourage, edify, those types of things. So there's some type of commitment to each other. And then gathered to do four or five things, I think the Bible kind of expects churches to do, worship, mission, fellowship, teaching, those types of things. So if they do those types of things, they relate to each other in that type of way, to church. Yeah, no, I would agree um, you know, with Dr. Hammond. We're, we're Baptist in that, in that <laughs> manner. I'm, I do think we emphasize both that there is the church uh, universal and the church local. Yeah. Uh, both of those are the church. Both are the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. Um, they're not different uh, uh, organisms. Obviously, the, the local church is a, is an ex, is a part of the, is a local uh, element of the universal church. And so that is what the church is. All right. So, um, Let's shift a little bit to where we might get into some differences, um, and that is with polity. Um, what are the central tenets of <laughs> Anglican and Baptist uh, polity? We'll start, we'll start with Anglican, um, and then maybe talk about some of the scripture that we would use to defend that. And then, you know, if you guys want to have a discussion on that, that'd be, that'd be yeah. great. To, well, I think to for a Anglican polity, number one, help the king find a new wife. Here we go. <laughs> it's funny because it's true. Uh, yeah, that's how the Anglican Church um, began politically accidentally and then how it became a genuinely Protestant movement. The Anglican Church, my good friend John Dix, he says something about the Anglican Church that I like. He says, the Anglican Church is what the Catholic Church would look like <laughs> if it embraced the Reformation. There we go. Okay, which I think is a good way. If the, now, I won't say that for every part of the Anglican Church because you have a thing called uh, the Episcopal mm. Church, which my mind is probably more Chopra and not so much Oprah, mm. um, <laughs> the way I would, I would describe it or certain parts of it. Uh, in, in terms of, the, of polity, uh, I think for Anglicans, what's very important uh, is what I think would be important in many ways to Baptists. It would be uh, the ministry of the word, uh, the ministry of the sacraments and the ordinances and our common worship. And uh, we, all, we would also say that we have a form of government uh, that is both Catholic and apostolic. So probably no, that last thing we might d disagree a bit, but I think the first three elements would, would more or less overlap considerably. I think so. Obviously, from a Baptist perspective, the bedrock element of the polity of the local church uh, is that the church um, is congregational in its, in its governance, and the congregation is made up of regenerate baptized believers. 
And so that really becomes the bedrock element of, of who we are uh, as Baptists. And there are a whole lot of other things that come out of that, the autonomy of the church. Uh, but I, I really think that as we think about um, who we are as Baptists, this idea of a, of a regenerate membership, of baptized believers, uh, and then congregational uh, polity. I think that, that we kind of take our, our starting point from the uh, local church as opposed to universal. So we think about local manifestations, how they govern their affairs as locally autonomous churches. And so we do focus there on the role of the congregation and probably the, the place where uh, I have some differences with my Anglican brothers and sisters is that I don't think any other polity gives due weight to the role of the congregation as we see it in the New Testament. Mm. The fact that Paul wrote letters to churches, churches took the role in discipline and those types of things, admitting and dismissing members, those types of things. And now uh, we can have a discussion. I don't think there's a, a Loctite case for one polity and there is no blueprint, yep. those types of things. And so a lot of people say, well, polity should be an adiaphora, should be an indifferent thing. There's none of data, those types of things. Uh, well, maybe not a blueprint, but I think there's some clues pointing toward congregational polity, the role of the congregation in different areas of, of life in the book of Acts, final court in the, the terms of discipline, those types of things, the fact probably wrote letters to the churches, those types of things. So I don't think any other polity gives due weight to the congregation. And as long as the congregation is composed of people who know God, mm -hmm. and they can receive guidance from God and make good decisions for their welfare. Uh, so uh, that's why we focus on local, and that's why apostolic for us, it has to do with the apostolic writings more than the apostolic succession, those types of things. Yeah, I think you're right. Apostolic can be uh, done both ways. I, I would raise, someone knows a bit about, I would raise two questions about the, uh, re, re, the idea of regenerate membership and autonomy. Yeah. Um, is regenerate membership the reality or the ideal? <laughs> because I've been in a number of oh. um, Baptist churches and I'm pretty sure not everyone on that membership role was regenerate. I know that's true. And, yeah, I know. Yeah. Uh, also, in my mind, uh, I think the warnings to the book of Hebrews make them best sense if the author is writing to a congregation and they're, they're all seem to be part of at least the visible church. Yeah. Where not everyone I don't think is regenerate. I think people are like different different places in a journey. Yeah. So I think the book of Hebrews makes sense assuming that within the, the visible church at least, there is a, a, a wide variety of places where people are in relationship to God, hopefully always moving towards God and Christ. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, there, I think the, the local church is very important. That is emphasized in yeah. the book of Acts. I think that is one of the strengths of the Baptist tradition, the importance of the local church. But the autonomy of the local church, I think, can be pushed to a sense where you end up with like the book of Judges where every congregation yeah, does yeah. what it's right in yeah. its own eyes. Mm -hmm. And if you read, I think, Acts and Paul's letters, you get the idea that this is a network of churches yeah. that are connected mm -hmm. and accountable to each other. I won't say they're all under the authority of the one bishop. Okay. I won't say that. <laughs> I'll, I'll concede that. Uh, but it's, I don't, it was never a case, okay, well, you be you and I'll right. be me. Yeah. Uh, Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council was to make sure that the Antioch and the Jerusalem yep, churches yep. were singing off the same sheet right. of gospel music. Yep. Um, Paul always opens his letters by saying, your faith is being reported in the whole world. Yep. So that there, was, yep. there was very much, you know, we're part of a common, you know, pan-Mediterranean yep. movement. Yep. So I'd, I'd like to hear yep. exactly how does the ideal and the reality <laughs> relate to uh, church membership? Yeah. And uh, importantly, how do autonomous churches experience uh, or express what I would call um, uh, fellowship wider than yeah. their own yeah. local church and their own accountability 
and their cooperation. Right. I mean, you mentioned the, the cooperative program. Sure, that'd yeah. Be, yeah. Be, so, let, so let me talk about the second one. You can talk about the first one if you want to. Yeah, the, the ideal reality? Yeah. Well, obviously, yeah. I mean, one of the biggest problems we have is that uh, Regenerate Church membership has become a, a very, very little valued ideal. Mm -hmm. At one, it's much more valued. And so 150 years ago, there's a lot more emphasis on that. And we were closer to the reality then to where your attendance at your church could be larger than the membership. Yep. Got the members attending, then some, there's a thing about membership that's showing those types of things. Uh, in the 20th century, that, that completely reversed. Mm. Yeah. And so the biggest problem we have right now is recovering the ideal of regenerative church membership. In fact, 11 years ago, I had a resolution on that in our convention. So this is probably the, the number one problem I see in Southern Baptist life, and maybe Baptist as a whole in North America, is recovering that ideal. Uh, but when you see what, how, what Paul expects of churches in his letters, you know, he says, teach one another, love, pray for it. That kind of expects that they're believers. And so and there may be some room in Hebrews for some people moving toward that, some warnings there. But generally, Paul seems to expect churches to be able to do things together yeah. that seem to presuppose their, their believers, or at least in large part. And so uh, I think that, that this is the ideal that we're working for. And when we, we've been a lot closer to it at some times than others. It's funny that you mentioned in a, one of the differences between Australian and American Baptist churches. In Australian Baptist churches, you'll normally have a church with, say, a membership of about 60 to 80, yeah. but a weekly attendance of about 150, yeah. Yeah. where people tell me it's the opposite. You'll have, like, a, a membership of, like, you know, five, 600 or something, but only 200 people actually attending, mm -hmm. which yeah. is the, it's the complete opposite. Right. Well, the, the average attendance in, in SBC churches is 35% of members. Mm. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, we're 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 in a, a heap of trouble there. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I know that's a, a statistical fact and a theological problem in the church. So I like your the, the question about uh, autonomy. Um, I, I think that one of the the points of emphasis that we that we try to correct, and I don't know that we always do a good job. I think it's it's, it's clear, is a distinction a distinction between independence and autonomy. Yeah, or isolation. Isolation. Yeah. yeah. So. This, the, the, uh, the autonomy of the local church, which enables, empowers, gives authority to the local church, uh, is something that we, uh, we uphold. And it, it, has, it can swing to the side of isolation or independence. Yeah. But I agree with you. I don't think that's a New Testament image at all. Uh, in fact, I think that the burden of proof for an independent Baptist or independent yeah. uh, is, I mean, the burden of proof is to show us where you see that anywhere yeah. in the New Testament. I mean, clearly... Yeah, I, I regard independent church as an oxymoron. That's yeah, right. It's kind of yeah. like, it's yeah. like being an independent marriage. You That's exactly, yeah. <laughs> you, you be you, I'll be me, maybe catch with Thanksgiving. Or no, I think, yeah, that I mean, is exactly right. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, the, the, there's, no, there's no concept of an independent missionary uh, movement in exactly. the New Testament. Paul was, uh, and his missionary team, and the other missionary teams that were sent out, Paul's obviously was not the only missionary team that we see example of in the New Testament, was clearly uh, accountable to and tied to local body, yep. uh, and or tied to the fellowship of the New Testament church, the Jerusalem church, the Antioch church, and even the, 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 the churches that Paul was planting. There was a degree of accountability back yeah. and forth there. So I think that uh, the autonomy of the local church, what we as Southern Baptists have got to strive for is, is, an, is an understanding that autonomy and voluntary fellowship have to go hand in hand if we're going to meet the ideal of the New Testament. I think if we do anything other than that, We've, we've highlighted what's probably an American ideal of independence yeah. mm -hmm. above a biblical ideal of 
of fellowship and voluntary cooperation, voluntary association together yeah. for the mission of God, for the purpose of the church. Uh, whether it's evangelism or ministry, mission, those things have to go together. So I don't. So one of the struggles I think I know that we have as, as Southern Baptists is this idea that that independence is not autonomy. That when we talk about biblical autonomy, we, we still think the Bible shows fellowship and then the necessary element of fellowship. Otherwise, we're an unhealthy body. Yeah. Yeah. And we're, we're starting to, to recover some accountability to our churches. We have to deal with sexual abuse and those types of yes, things. So we exactly. have some mechanisms now right. to if a church does not deal with that, the SBC can disfellowship them. Right. And yeah. so that when, uh, so, the, so we're having the danger the pastor just moves to another. That's exactly church. right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and that's that doesn't end. I mean, what's what's uh, rather amusing for me is um, in Australia, some of the Baptist churches I know complain that within denomination they don't have enough autonomy. Um, hmm. I mean, this will probably weird you out a little bit, uh, but uh, in, in a denomination I was originally part of, ordination was not done by the local church, it was done by the denomination. Wow. And it's actual, so you had to go through denominational committees mm. and then the Baptist denomination as a whole wow. would, uh, would <laughs> ordain people. And churches were not yeah. meant to ordain anyone uh, who were not um, accredited. You can, you can huh. be accredited without oh. being ordained, but unless you were accredited, you, they, you weren't, so you literally had the denomination yeah. telling you who you could appoint as a minister. Interesting. Which, which was, uh, and, and so churches complained. It gets even a little bit better. Um, I mean, it was a great denomination. I, I, I loved it. I, I, I had so many friends and there's good mission ministry. But they also appointed what was called Baptist superintendents <laughs> that would be in charge of a particular region and usually helping to mediate mm. conflicts between pastors and churches. And in some cases, they tried, they tried to tell churches that as part, of, like when you hire a new um, pastor, you need to give them a contract where they're required to undergo mentoring by the Baptist wow. superintendent. Mm. Wow. Now, I had to point out these Baptist superintendents seem to sound and look a lot like bishops. <laughs> um, no, 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 not You know, I mean, just stick the guy, just stick the bit of purple on the person, let them dunk babies, yeah, and it was yeah. basically... Um, so, but, but that was, I mean, th there was, you know, the idea was to have a pastor, the yeah. pastor, and to help with sure. church. So there were some very good ideas there, but some of the Australian Baptists, um, they actually want more autonomy. Yeah. Mm. Well, I wonder uh, if they're more Australian than Baptist there. Yeah, well, maybe. Um, that may, may well be the case. Yeah. Uh, although it's changed a little bit with um, certain debates about ordination. I think they've given, yeah. certainly in New South Wales, they've given more power to local churches yeah. to, to affect ordination. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I want to move on to other questions, but I do want to ask uh, kind of a follow-up to, to all of you. What responsibility does the local congregation have to other local congregations? I don't want to go church universal because that's too nebulous mm -hmm. to, to a certain yeah. extent. But what responsibility does each church have to one another? So, I, and I don't know, I'm not sure this is the answer that you're uh, specifically looking for, but... Um, so I'm an elder in my church, and we interview... Uh, anyone who wants to become a member of the church, we interview them. We're talking about their salvation, uh, their life, their call to ministry, covenant membership, this type of thing. And when I explain to them the purpose for this process, I say, I tell them, look, I want your little boy and your little girl, your grandson, your granddaughter to grow up in a church that you could feel confident saying to them, 
you see that man right there? You see that lady right there? They're a member of our church. So if you live like they live, if you believe like they believe, then you'll be doing the right thing, knowing that that's the example, that's the model of this, what is the body of Christ, this church body. So I, do, I try to explain that in, in my local church. I think we have the same responsibility from church to church is to be able to say, if, that, if you think that person over there, if they're a member of a Baptist church, they're a member of a Presbyterian, Anglican church, then we should be able to say, because of our common faith, f- follow that person. You, you, that person is a Christian, and so that church, as they raise up and train, equip the members of their church, we raise up and train the members of our church as part of the, the body of Christ. I think the responsibility to one another is that we're giving a good example out to the world so that no one looks and says, well, I don't believe in Christians because the Anglican, that Anglican church over there is doing this thing crazy or that Baptist church over there is doing this thing crazy. We ought to be able to say, this is who we are. So we have a responsibility as a body to, to, to model, to mimic, to disciple, to train, to mentor, so that we are demonstrating this common faith, this common lifestyle, uh, this, this way of life that does uh, uh, exemplify and demonstrate the gospel to a lost world around us. Kind of two levels in terms of our responsibility to other congregations, other churches, in our area locally, so for Southern Methodist Association, I think that's where accountability comes in. Because one thing that's difficult about being locally autonomous is no other church can force your church to do anything, but your church can go off the rails too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what happens? Well, if it's a, you're a member of an association of churches, they can say, well, we can't remove your pastor and make you do it. But we can say, you can't be a member of this association mm-hmm. doing like that. So I think it, at least some type of public warning to the, the, the neighborhood, and this yeah. church has gone off the rails, and so these other churches, and we're associated together in this association. That's one of the important things that, that kind of cancers our autonomy is the associational mm-hmm. impulse to have associations. So a local association can say, this church has gone off the rails. They're not dealing with sexual abuse or racism, those types mm-hmm. of things. And so and that associationally and locally, at least, and within other, other churches you're in association with, mm-hmm. uh, then that's a, a good responsibility holding each other accountable there. Uh, locally, beyond that in terms of ecumenically, I think the important thing is to listen to other churches carefully, recognizing uh, that we're, we're looking at the, the same Lord, the same faith, and they may have some insights that we've missed. And so being humbly listening to other churches as well. Yeah, I think it operates slightly differently with your denomination. Denominations are, are a bit like, uh, like, like, a, like a brand. Like, you know, wherever you go in the world, uh, if you get Colgate toothpaste, you know the brand and you know the quality. Yeah. So, like, so being Baptist or being, it's like, okay, wherever I go in the world, I know the, I know the product and I know what I'm getting kind of a thing. So denominations are, are good, so sort of consistency of product, ideally. Um, outside of your denomination, I think it's, uh, you know, people can generally cooperate where they have common interest. And that's traditionally been in areas related to sort of, you know, ethical things like, you know, religious liberty, yeah, yeah. Uh, those sorts of issues, uh, like helping the poor, philanthropic mm-hmm. ventures. Uh, in some cases, um, mission, you think uh, interdenominational groups like, uh, um, as they still, they still call it Campus Crusade crew. Crew. or Crew, yeah. um, or, you know, InterVarsity right. Fellowship. Mm-hmm. So there are, there, are, there, are, there are some big tent places where we can all come and play together, right. even if at, at the end of every evening we kind of go home to yeah. our own little denominational sure. small tent. 
Like ETS. Yeah, ETS. Yeah, right. yeah. Uh, which I still strikes me as being about 80% Southern Baptist. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a uh, recent thing. That's <laughs> But I always feel welcome there. <laughs> All right, so let's, uh, let's shift our, our attention to the initiation into the Christian community. <laughs> what are the oh, different boy. beliefs about baptism between Anglicans and Baptists? Uh, Easy boy. question, right? Yeah. I don't, know what, I don't know what the Anglicans believe. The Baptists just believe the Bible. <laughs> yeah, oh, I mean, obviously, man. from a Baptist perspective, initiation in the Christian community is baptism by immersion after faith in Christ. Or is it? Or is it? I thought uh, regeneration is, is for the Baptists is what puts you in the church, which is then merely recognized by baptism. Sure, yeah, but the local community. Okay, baptism, yeah. Because yeah. Anglicans right. would say baptism, which is what sure. puts you in the yeah. church, irrespective yeah. of whether you're regenerate right. or not. Yeah. yeah. So, um, go that. Um, yeah, I think baptism is the, is the mark of initiation, and there's different ways of describing baptism. Is it the classically the outward expression of the inward experience, the nailing the colors to the mask, or is it a sign of the objective promises of God's covenant, um, which then relates to to families? For me, the, the I mean, you guys can share, I'll let you guys shoot me down over this. <laughs> but what changed my view of baptism was largely reading uh, Romans chapter four, because the new covenant is the eschatological fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. I think we all agree on that. Uh, but if the Abrahamic covenant had a place for children in it. Uh, how much more so then would the new covenant have a place for children in it? So that that was kind of what um, changed my mind. That the new co if the old covenant had a place for children in it, then surely the new covenant would have a place in for not merely as potential Christians, uh, but as part of the uh, part of the whole covenant family. And what I found is both sides end up having to um, do a little bit of tinkering to get things right. So Anglicans baptize babies to say they're part of the church family but then they do this thing called a confirmation service yeah, yeah. to say that they've made their faith their own and they're not just getting on their parents coattails anymore so there's kind of an initiation and an appropriation uh, in the baptist scenes i've been part of they will have infant dedications <laughs> which are basically baptisms without water yeah. and then they have a proper baptism so, well, I see the similarity. Everyone wants to say this child is being brought into a Christian home, into a Christian church, and we will raise this child as or to be a Christian, and then we want some sort of thing to say, okay, uh, they've now made this faith their own. Um, everyone wants those two things. The debate is where do you put the water? Mm. <laughs> um, my gut feeling is as long as you have those two things there, you know, the kind of, you know, the, the sort of you know, being brought into the covenant family, into a covenant church, and as long as they're an appropriation, maybe where you put the water isn't, isn't the most important thing. Not unimportant, <laughs> but maybe it's not the most important thing. Well, my, my problem with infant baptism has always been, what do you say about the baptism of those who grew up and turned away? What happened? If we have some objective promise uh, of God's grace in this family, and this child's baptized, and they grew up and they turned away from the faith, what happened back there through their baptism? Uh, is it nullified somehow? Things like that. So, uh, also, I just have in terms of my overall perspective of fulfillment, I think there's been fulfillment and some discontinuity between Old Testament and New Testament. So, that's why I kind of adjust with the, the, the place for the child in the Old Covenant versus New Covenant. Yeah. 
Um, I would say you still get the same problem with the people turning away with believers' baptism. Yeah. If they were regenerate, um, and if, depending on your regeneration, and if they turn away, you just move the problem along a well, little bit. I would say that we have a human judgment there of the regeneration, and we missed, we missed it. Missed there. it, okay. Yeah. 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 And you know, that, that's a, you know, we, we baptize on profession of faith. Mm -hmm. That profession may turn out to be spurious, false. Yeah. And, uh, so we're making the best judgment we can, but yeah, yeah, our judgment is false. Yeah, so I think for infant baptism, we would say this is a sign of the covenant, but it's not a guarantee that person will continue on in that covenant. Yeah. Um, they may take a look at, um, at Jesus, the church, the family of faith, and say, um, I don't want to do that, yeah. uh, because, and that, and that because they are not regenerate or uh, yeah. elect or whatever yeah. language you want to use. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right, I do want to open up the floor to you guys here in a few seconds, but I do want to ask you guys real briefly, uh, in, in the midst of, of considering Baptist or Anglican uh, theology, polity, baptism, when you go home tonight, um, what will be the one question that you're like, man, I, I, I wish I had a better answer, or this, is, this question always troubles me uh, from the other side. What, what would be the one thing that you keep coming back to? Oh, for me, the biggest is one is like, so is it your denomination just because King Henry wanted a new wife? <laughs> <laughs> it's, I've got nothing to say. I say that is literally how it began. It wasn't, it wasn't good. Yeah. Um, but we, we tried to make it the best of it. Um, we had Cranmer and Richard Hooker and, and did I mention John Stott? Um, that's, yeah. that's Southern Baptist, we have a similar problem. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Just as bad, yeah. worse. So. Yeah. Is that the slavery thing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, had, I thought there may be several things. I just that's right. No, yeah, okay. that's right. So we're, we're, we're equally problematic. Well, the, the thing that, that, you know, John Sluss, one of my heroes, and so I love Anglicans are my, my, my heroes. And so the thing that, that um, does give me a little bit of pause is the challenge that, that Luther raised. How could the church be wrong on infant baptism for a thousand years? And yeah. so that does bother me that, uh, that no one saw it earlier. Uh, but it is interesting that, that once the Bible became more, more uh, available, Reformation, it didn't take us too long to move toward Anabaptist. So. Yeah. yeah. Or can, can I just say one thing that did scare me about, <laughs> I once heard the provost of a big Baptist seminary give an explanation and critique of Anglicanism, which was very good. But when he was asked, were there any Christians prior to the Baptists, he said, I take it on faith there probably were. <laughs> but he didn't sound too confident. Um, which kind of like, like, oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. They're not on our team either. Yeah. So the, I think the one thing I would like to, as a missiologist in the, uh, in the, in the group, um, two things I would just think we need to, to make sure that we get out, and that is that, uh, and Dr. Bird was right, there are plenty of areas that we as Christians must cooperate together mm -hmm. across denominational lines um, for the sake of seeing the lost come to faith in Christ. Uh, we can't, I think we need to be able to, to honestly look at one another and evaluate denominational differences and say, look, there's some areas that we can't cooperate together. I, some of the biggest disasters I've ever seen on the mission field have been when people try to ignore mm. key denominational differences, pretend they don't exist, they cooperate, they plant churches, they get to the point, I was with a, a group, they, uh, they, we, you know, let's pretend we're not Baptist and Anglican and then let's 
let's plant a church and, until we have Christians and babies are born. Then the whole thing blew up. Yeah. And it was a disaster to the work because we weren't honest about our differences. The flip side of that, though, I think is there are plenty of areas that we have to cooperate together. We need to be very careful that we don't let uh, brand differences, uh, which are obviously theological convictions that we hold, so yeah. we, don't, we don't ignore them, cause such a, dis, uh, a separation that we aren't able to see that we're on the same team. Yeah. And we're on the team that has been given the mandate and the responsibility of making disciples of all nations. And uh, this becomes the area of cooperation. We have to be able to see that. Uh, and it takes maturity on our part and I think intentionality. Uh, that that um, I, I have said regularly, you end up in a missionary context and you realize just how much alike you are from a Baptist to an Anglican to a Presbyterian. If you're in a context where there are fewer Christians, you get in a context where Christians feel like the majority. You make all kind of weird divisions and make fun of people, and not. Be, but when, you know, but when you get in a real missionary and you really recognize the lostness of the world around us, we're on the same team, and we have got to work together for the sake of the kingdom. Which is why the ecumenical movement was largely born on the mission field. That's right. Yeah. Uh, because on the mission field, you do not have the luxury of being able to divide over second or third order issues. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Um, you know, like if, you, if you're like, you know, um, like in the mid 20th century, if you're behind the Iron Curtain, um, communist authorities don't care whether you're Baptist, <laughs> Methodist, that's right. uh, or anything. I mean, you're, you're worshiping something besides the state, so you're an enemy of the state. Mm -hmm. So you've got you to watch the backs of the, of the Methodists and, and the Baptists and the Presbyterians. That's yeah. right. All right. Well, uh, let's throw out the questions to you guys. Um, so, Kathleen, did you actually hit Griffin and then Matt? Yes, Griffin, you can be Anglican. <laughs> <laughs> I've been waiting for that. Um, I, I wonder, in your evangelical faith, um, Systematic, you, you don't spend a tremendous amount of time talking about congregationalism or the practicalities of church polity. So what do you think is the center of ecclesiology? What is, what is the, the most important thing um, that you, you want to focus on in the ecclesiological discussion? I would say the headship of Christ over the church. Hmm is the number one. The, the biggest issue I have is trying to get people excited about the doctrine of ecclesiology. <laughs> uh, seriously, um, a lot of, a lot of um, Christians, and I mean, this is Nick, Nick Perrin's the president of Trinity University, and he says for a lot of Christians, the church is just the weekly meeting of mm. Jesus' Facebook friends. Yeah. Mm. Um, so it's just kind of a, a consumerist place where people of similar interests come together yeah rather than as a sacred, sacramental, covenantal, missional body, okay? The actual body of Christ. Rather than think of it of the body of Christ, we tend to think of it the chips and dips of Christ, <laughs> the kind of the optional extra or the, the, Feder the FedEx delivery boy. Whereas we need, I think, a more stronger and vibrant value of the church, which is why in some of the ancient confessions you confess, I believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. Yeah. Uh, we confess who we are, who we relate to, and our role in the world. So apart from saying Christ is the head of the church, getting people excited about the doctrine of the church, and it's not an optional extra. It's not just the wrapping paper for your faith. Amen.
another question about polity, I guess. I don't know if it's wrong. Well, we'll go with it. Um, so thinking about in an international context, international missions context, especially as the church spreads in a, in a global, you know, globalized world and majority world, um, a, a lot of what we've heard about church polity um, and even looking back through it, through history, is that church polity tends to sort of reflect the culture around it. Yeah. And so uh, even Baptists in Australia with your, uh, with our pseudo-bishops, I guess. Um, <laughs> my, I hope so my Aussie friends are not watching. They're going to be so <laughs> mad. <laughs> Telling Americans we've got Baptist bishops! <laughs> so oh, a, as we engage in mission around the world, what are areas where we need to be uh, kind of hold our polity loosely in order to contextualize the church well in those contexts. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Oh, can I give you the best example of um, uh, sort of cultural Baptist ecclesiology? Uh, is there any here ever heard of Georgian Baptists? No, I don't mean like Christie's Savannah, Georgia Baptists. <laughs> I mean Georgia in Eastern Europe Baptists. This is a Baptist, there's a Baptist mm -hmm. denomination in Georgia where they have Baptist pastors who dress as Greek Orthodox oh, wow. clergy. Uh, they also have literally Baptist bishops with, gets even better, hereditary succession. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. And gets even better. They also have female Baptist pastors <laughs> who dress as Orthodox wow, wow. clergy. Now, if you want to talk about a kind of a very peculiar uh, mismatch of kind of Baptist... Um, Eastern European mm -hmm. and like Georgian Orthodox culture, go look at Georgian Baptists and uh, th that'd be a very, now you've got to, uh, <laughs> you, know, you have to ask the question, are they simply embedding the gospel and Baptist ecclesiology <laughs> within their context mm. or have they gone into a kind of peculiar syncretism yeah, yeah, with their culture? That's, that's always the debate, isn't it? Where does contextualization end and when does syncretism uh, begin. Uh, certainly having Baptist female pastors dress as orthodox priests <laughs> is definitely, uh, I think, not probably uh, in, in, in indigenous right. to the region. Yeah. But there are some very, I mean, I would just love to attend one of these churches uh, just to see what it's like and what they do. Uh, I've read about them and I've got some friends who, who, who know them. But that, 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 is a, that would be, a, if you're ever writing like a case study on, on Baptist ecclesiology, wow. uh, you should write about Georgian That's Baptists. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That, that'd be a fun, ex a fun yeah. exercise. Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say one thing I think that, that is important is, again, uh, not exporting American ideas. For example, in our Baptist faith and message, we have churches operating under democratic processes. Mm -hmm. I think congregational processes would be a better word there because dem democratic is more Western, more U.S. Mm -hmm. I think there's a way of being a congregation without being democratic, consensual decision-making, those types of things. And so I think trying to, to contextualize wisely mm -hmm. without going too far. And so I think there's ways of preserving uh, congregational polity without having robust rules of orders and votes and those types of things. I think it's true. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. One last question. Thank you guys for your cordial and convictional discussion. It's been really, really helpful. I've done a little bit of reading on ecclesiology recently, and one of the things that I'm getting the impression, please correct me if this is wrong, uh, I get the impression that one disagreement between Baptists and Anglicans would be in terms of methodology, the question of the sufficiency of Scripture, 
Uh, and in the way I seem to be understanding this is that uh, is that Baptists generally would see scripture as completely sufficient for ecclesiology, whereas Anglicans would see it sufficient for everything it was designed for, uh, which may or may not include the details of ecclesiology. If is that do you, does that seem fair to you? And if it if it is, is there a way to adjudicate which of those views uh, should be should be taken? I don't think it is fair. Okay. okay so I, I, that's not how I read ecclesiological dis discussions along those lines, and so. I think that there may be differences in terms of how you define sufficiency of scripture among Baptists mm -hmm. as well as among Anglicans. Yeah, uh, the 39 Articles refers explicitly to the sufficiency of scripture. In fact, that's the very term that's yeah. used, the sufficiency of scripture. It doesn't use the language infallible or errant because that was not the debate mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. But scripture was sufficient to adjudicate and determine what would be the church's polity and faith. One thing you have to remember about Anglicanism is it's normally treated as a via media between um, Catholicism and Protestantism. Yeah. In some ways it can be that, but Anglicanism, as certainly as it was planned, plotted and executed by Thomas Cranmer, was designed to be a via media between Geneva and Wittenberg. <laughs> so yeah. Anglicanism, as Cranmer designed it, was meant to be an explicitly Protestant church which meant recovering biblical forms and modes of worship. Now, they believed they had a lot of that um, in the ancient church, with the exception of the things like the mass and penance and indulgences. They believed there was a rich tradition of worship that they inherited from the patristic and medieval church. So they weren't trying to just, you know, um, cut bait and start something completely new out of, out of nowhere. Uh, it was generally, it was the attempt to reform the church mm -hmm not replant the church in a, in, a, in a new route, if you like. So they did believe in a lot more continuity with the past. I really appreciate your correction. Just a quick follow-up then. Uh, as an Anglican, do you, do you believe that your polity is derived explicitly from Scripture, or, or, it, or should I say solely from Scripture, or is there a combination of Scripture and tradition? How does that...? Well, I'll, I'll say this. If you go to an Anglican prayer book service, you will have four times as much scripture <laughs> read and heard and prayed as you will do in Edge, Bridge, Point, Connections, or whatever megachurch that you're kind of talking about. Um, you will get a lot, a lot more scripture in, and, and it's baffling, even in a liberal church that yeah. still follows a prayer book, you will get so much scripture in the prayers, readings, uh, the, the antiphonies going on. The problem is they may not believe it, yeah. which is the downside, but the scripture will be saturated, this worship will be saturated um, more so than some contemporary evangelical mm -hmm. churches that have almost given up on prayers. Mm -hmm. You get like a few nuggets of Bible readings and then, um, you, know, you know, you get songs like, Jesus, you're terrific for you, I'd swim the Pacific. Yeah, baby, yeah, baby, yeah, yeah, yeah. Followed by a sermon on five biblical tax shelters. Um, yeah, so if you've been exposed to that, suddenly the Anglican liturgy don't seem too bad. So that's my apologia for Anglicanism against consumer evangelical Christianity. I think the other side is just in terms of debates over the meaning of sufficient scripture, I think that's intra-Baptist, intra-evangelicals, it's not just de denomination by denomination. Thank you. All 
right. Uh, thank you all for being here today. Can I ask one more question? Sure. Can I add one? Uh, I'd love to know what my panelists think about the phenomena of multi-site churches and how, I mean, this is the, yeah, yeah, you all know. Yeah, the, elef the pink elephant in the room with the rainbow afro cannot be ignored, cannot be ignored. Because, I mean, I think now like about between 10 and 20% of Americans now attend yeah. a multi-site yeah. yeah. church. Okay. Now this race is because what I find is driving multi-sites is the technology and yeah, certain yeah. personalities. And I love, I, this is going to sound so cruel, but I love telling my Baptist friends their multi-site church is more hierarchical and authoritative yeah. than some Anglican diocese yeah, yeah. because all the campus ministers are appointed top down. This is not, well, there are different models. Um, Greg Allison of Southern Center has written a very good book kind of a, a defense of doing multi-site in a very, very Southern Baptist way where there is, yeah. so that there is different congregational ways of doing multi-site churches, but some are very top-down and authoritative, yeah. like I said, um, and it's driven, I think, by technology and personality. I'd like to know what, what is the feeling about multi-site churches? Um, that you, I mean, do you attend a multi-site church? Um, what, what, what are your feelings? How, how is, how, how is multi-site affecting the ecclesiological landscape? Yeah. And what is the best Baptist way to do multi-site? Yeah. Well, there are about 15 different versions of multi-site. So yeah. a multi-site where, where each campus has their own pastor that preaches to them is, I think, a better process than one in which one person does all the preaching and videotapes and things yeah. like that. So but having said that, uh, I do think that it's, it's interesting that Paul always uses the singular for the church in a city. Yeah. And so I think it's likely that in some of those cities there were multiple yep. uh, congregations. So I, I, agree. I can't say these things are anti-biblical altogether. Yeah. As long as they have some type of what I call relational unity. Yeah. And they have some ability to know each other. Acts 2, they were all together having all things in common. As long as the multi-site can function as one body... I'm okay with that. I think that, that the problem is what's happening, they're spreading it more and more. Where how can they do congregationalism as a multiple? Now, again, so uh, I, that's my, my reservation. I wish, wish that multi-sites were becoming more, more quick to spin off a local congregation that's autonomous. Yep. And some are moving in that direction. Yeah, uh, I've seen that where they become multi-site for a while and then they become their own thing eventually. So it's almost like a nurturing thing. So I, I can see it as a yeah. church planning strategy there. Yeah. But I do have some reservations about... Uh, the, the two things you mentioned, uh, the top-down control, yeah, it's and then the, the actual reality of congregationalism in those churches. Yeah, because, I mean, the campus ministers may not be elected by the congregation. Well, again, um, I, I hope in most Baptists they are, but, yeah, we, we have our, our provost as a member of multi-site church. <laughs> the president of our oh, in that case, we like to change our answers to no comment. Well, <laughs> the president so I, of our, you know, actually, of our the, convention is the pastor of multi-site church. <laughs> I'm actually the chairman of the elders at the multi-site church. <laughs> so, yeah, so. Well, but, but so, but you face the, sure, you face these no, questions and these yeah. challenges because, yeah. like I said, it's the technology yeah. that's opening up all these possibilities. Yeah. So how do we be true to our ecclesiological convictions? Yeah. Now, say so us Anglicans face the same things. Sure. Uh, the, problem, the problem we have, we, we have Anglican churches planting non-Anglican <laughs> churches, which makes our, like, our, like, hierarchy a little bit angry that our Anglican churches are out planning churches loyal to them but not to yeah, the denomination. Sure. Um, that creates all sorts of headaches and suspicions and accusations. Yeah. So, so yeah, we're wrestling with yeah, it too. So, yeah, we wrestle obviously. The, I mean, I think the point, every multi-site church can be different. Yes. 
And so you have some, what I think are very unhealthy models. Yep. If you have a church in, say, one state, and they've got a campus in a different state or yep. a different country, then I have real, I think, man, this is a, a, a different type of structure. Yeah. You have some that lean more healthy. I hope the one that I'm a part of is, is leaning in that direction. We do have the exact struggles that you talk about. Yeah. I think what we try to do, so this is going to be a personal, uh, is we try to do, uh, to take seriously our theological convictions, our Baptist convictions, yeah. and then apply them into what would be a contemporary setting with the opportunities made available by technology. Yeah. And then also, uh, in a way uh, that um, can, um, um, takes advantage of or, or that maximizes the gifting of those who God sends as a leader, uh, yep. a, a pastor to your church. Our problem, to be quite frank, was that our pastor, um, for, for one reason or another, was, was, was popular, uh, gifted communicator, which means that the, the size of the congregation yep. outgrew the building that we could meet in. Yes. And is, then... Yep. We meet multiple times in the exact same building, and then yep. that size outgrows that. And then the question is, so what do we do now? Do yep. we build a mega amphitheater, yep. which we've really felt at that point was a, a, an unhealthy use of finances when you have yep. a, a building that seats 15,000 or 18,000 yep. people, whatever, yep. on a Sunday that's used once a week or twice a week. That seemed to be an unhealthy way of doing it. The other was we, we, we thought um, that the, the, the given campus that the, 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 the pastor was preaching in was a given distance that Christians were willing to drive to yep. hear the person preach. Lost people would say, I'm not going 30 minutes or 40 minutes to hear your pastor. And so the question was, how do we, mm. how do we this? So we used in the multi-site the technology as a missionary or missiological opportunity as opposed to an ego-driven personality. Yep. There is ego. I'm not going to deny there's ego. I'm not yep. going to deny there's, there's personality, there's ambition that's involved in any, any church uh, any church pastor, but our real goal was, so this is kind of per, autobiographical, is how do you wrestle through your Baptist convictions, mm -hmm. which is congregationalism, it's autonomy, uh, while taking seriously the opportunities provided yeah. by technology, and in, in, a, in, a real, in a negative but real sense, the celebrity aspect of American evangelicalism. Yeah. So our church seeks to have both autonomous churches that we plant, and campuses that we start that are more accountable to a central uh, basis. Each campus has a different level of contextual autonomy. Yep. But there's a oneness of vision, oneness of budget, oneness of, of direction. Yep. But at the same time, not everything we do is that. We also plant on a regular basis two, three, four camp churches that are autonomous yep. that we then use to your original point as almost a, a mentor. Hey, we mentor your yep. campus pastor. He plants, the, or your, your, not your campus pastor, your, your church planting pastor, he pastors the church, and that's an autonomous congregation. Yeah. So we struggle with the opportunity and the theological conviction that comes from a Baptist perspective, trying to do, trying to approach it from the most uh, healthy way possible, but then taking face on, hey, these are some problems we just have to face along the way. They're very real. Yeah. I definitely like the idea of, like, rather than build this sort of Taj Mahal mm -hmm. um, megachurch. Yeah. I mean, the first time I took one of my sons to a, to a, a megachurch, um, he thought we were going to Mall of America. Sure. Because where we're going, church is church. I thought this was a shopping mall. Sure. It was this massive structure. Sure. And rather than build that, I think multi-site is that. It's also good for places like in rural areas where they, they don't um, have enough sort of... Um, 
people there to support mm. a pastor. Yeah. And yeah. so the technology is very useful for places. I've seen that work in places like rural Scotland. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there are there are challenges. And um, so one of the ways that I try to say it is that for us, the multi-site uh, structure is a uh, our best attempt to take advantage of God's blessing on our church at this time in the context, in the, the fallen, broken, needy world that we're in. Okay. It's, not, it's not a missionary strategy we came with at the beginning as much as a response to, hey, God's done this stuff, now what do we do about it? Yep. Yep.